Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our second episode on the diversity series. And so I want to continue on from where we left off and further this conversation a little bit more. But before I get started, let's give us uh, let's give everybody a quick overview of diversity in Canada, right? So we know what we're talking about from a Canadian context. So the land that we call Canada today was obviously originally inhabited by indigenous people for more than 12,000 years, right? The folks that walked across the land bridge and then populated the entire western side of the Americas. Then over 12,000 years naturally spanned and came across the rest of the continent. However, when we talk about immigration in the modern Canadian context, we're really talking about that 17th century uh, sort of expansion that came through the French and the British colonies, right? And if you fast forward uh, and take a look at all of the things that have happened in between um, then and now, you see that the shaping of people's identities and the shaping of culture was a complex process that occurred alongside a lot of social changes, ethical changes, moral changes, legal changes, right? If you fast forward to our current era, it was 1971 when Canada became the first country in the world to enact an official policy of multiculturalism. This policy was meant to showcase how much Canadians valued diversity and how entrenched it was in our sense of identity. The sitting Prime Minister at the time was Pierre Elliott Trudeau when the Canadian Constitution um, was enacted in 1982. And that constitution included the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that protected multiculturalism, as well as many other fundamental rights that we enjoy today as Canadians. Speaking about the multiculturalism perspective, or that angle in particular, the Canadian Multiculturalism Act came into effect in 1988. And today, immigrants represent over 20% of the total Canadian population, Right? As I've said before, that's the highest proportion amongst any of the G8 countries. And this is a relevant point when you consider why this topic is particularly relevant to us. According to Statistics Canada, the majority of Canada's foreign-born population reside in Ontario, British Columbia, Quebec, and Alberta. So this province that we're in has a large distribution of foreign-born people who identify and call this place home, right? And so our lived experiences must naturally include people from a range of backgrounds. Statistics Canada goes on to project that by 2031, between 25 to 28% of the population will be foreign-born, and that 29 to 32% of the population will actually belong to a visible minority group. So I mentioned some of these numbers before, right? And visible minorities, uh, as a point of reference, are expected to account for 63% of the population of Toronto, one of our largest cities, um, by 2031, right? Other big cities like Vancouver is expected to have close to 60% visible minorities. So from this perspective, we should take away, or at least the goal is to take away, that diversity in Canada is meant to extend beyond race and ethnicity. It's also meant to, uh, to span language, gender, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, 
abilities, and economic status. To understand it from this perspective gives us a manner from which we can understand the formal policies that inform the official Canadian identity. So how do we understand this framework under which Canadians live? Well, it is declared in the policy of the Government of Canada via the Multiculturalism Act of 1985 that diversity makes up and is critical to the identity of Canada as a nation, right? And some of the following elements are central to that policy. So it's meant to recognize and promote the understanding that multiculturalism is a fundamental characteristic of the Canadian heritage and identity, and it provides an invaluable resource in shaping of the Canadian future. It's meant to ensure that all individuals receive equal treatment and equal protection under the law, while also respecting and valuing their own diversity. Right? It's meant to encourage and assist the social, cultural, economic, and political institutions of Canada while being respectful and inclusive of their multicultural character. It is meant to foster the recognition and appreciation of the diverse cultures of Canadian society and promote the reflection and the evolving expression of those cultures. So it does this by trying to preserve and enhance the use of languages other than English and French, while obviously also strengthening the status and the use of the official languages of Canada, being English and French. And it seeks to put multiculturalism in harmony with the general identity of being Canadian. It is a commitment to a shared experience, if you will. And it is a policy that has guided the Canadian view on how we interact with people of numerous backgrounds that all come together to form one sort of cohesive society. Or at least, that is the goal. I say that that is the goal because obviously there is diversity in ideology as well, right? There is no monolithic view on sort of how diversity is meant to be represented nor is there a sort of monolithic view on how to define or approach the subject. So it's worth having, uh, it's worth taking a little bit of time and energy to sort of form this idea um, of diversity from a Canadian perspective, but also to connect it with the things that we're dealing with every day, the challenges of living in such a society. They're complex and they're often uh, rooted in multiple different experiences that are vastly different. So complex and often unjust histories of marginalization and oppression will shape some cultural identities. While being in a position of, you know, privilege, to use a word that's probably overused, will shape others' experiences. Add to that the myriad of social conditions that influence upon everyone's lived, uh, you know, lived conditions, lived experiences, and you start to get a very complex view on the topic in itself. Now, diversity has the potential to increase negative outcomes such as conflict and miscommunication, because at the end of the day, that is the root of the human condition. Trying to find a way to both 
ensure you have clear understanding of where other people are coming from while also preserving your own position. So as a consequence of a continuously diversified society, academics have constantly sought to find better ways to understand intergroup relationships. These attempts have traditionally focused on the practice of stereotyping or on discrimination, as well as representational concerns around traditionally underrepresented groups. So most research on diversity ideologies has been done in the context of race, and identifying and looking at differences in ideologies will give us an understanding of where people are coming from. So I'd like to point out and, uh, and sort of discuss a little bit two broad types of, of diversity ideologies, which differ in the extent to which they recognize or ignore differences between demographic groups. Though they differ in their approach, the two dominant ideologies share the same ultimate goal, though, right? And that is contributing to an environment in which diverse groups of people can harmoniously live and work together. So if I break them down, one ideology aims to do that by ignoring and de-emphasizing differences between groups, while the other takes the opposite approach by being open and recognizing differences. Now, I'm not going to take a position and tell you which one is better or worse or, you know, in my opinion, because my opinion is just that. I think it's important, though, to understand both ideologies so you can see how people uh, utilize them as their own personal frames of reference. So the first one we'll talk about is colorblindness or, as, uh, or colorblindness as an approach anyways. And it focuses on de-emphasizing differences between social groups. Here, the underlying assumption of this ideology is that categorizing individuals by their social group leads to prejudice and conflict. Therefore, if you ignore, you know, uh, therefore ignoring social categories arguably should reduce those negative consequences. The colorblind ideology is not without its critiques, obviously. So this idea that we can all ignore color and race and difference and act as if we are all a one and the same seems to have a noble intent but it's sometimes in the execution that it's you know it struggles so opponents of colorblindness suggest that suppressing social categories is not possible right as human beings we have a natural tendency to categorize um, our environment and because we are we we do that so that we can process the large amounts of information that we're interacting with every day, right? In fact, research shows that demographic group information like race and sex is detected in the brain within milliseconds, making it almost impossible to ignore. In fact, it becomes the primary point of consideration because we process it so quickly. So opponents propose that colorblindness is not only impossible, but it should also be undesirable because it ignores the unique cultural identities and the traditions of various groups, right? And it almost takes this position that seems to be a forced assimilation, if you will, into some sort of dominant power structure. Now, on the other hand, the idea that diversity should be emphasized rather than ignored is central to the second prominent ideology uh, you know, that's in the literature. And that would be multiculturalism. Now, I'm not speaking about the act specifically. I'm literally talking about multiculturalism as an ideology, which is sort of used as a catch-all for awareness, right? And recognition, if you will, of difference. 
So in this view, uh, differences between social groups should not only be recognized and emphasized, but they should also be valued and celebrated, right? And proponents of multiculturalism will argue that categorization does not have to necessarily be harmful. When differences between demographic groups are perceived in a positive manner, right? So something you can learn from, something you can enjoy, celebrate, and partake in perhaps, or something that you can appreciate, then they don't necessarily evoke prejudice. Now, this idea is also not without its critiques, right? And similar to the people that had concerns around colorblindness, the critiques of multiculturalism argue that in emphasizing differences between groups, you can almost exacerbate stereotypes, create almost willful divisions between groups, delegitimize racial inequity claims, and promote this idea of racial segregation, right? One that we have fought as a society uh, within Western culture at large to move away from. So it finds itself at an awkward crossroads where we should acknowledge difference and yet not differentiate between people on the basis of that difference. And that's a hard sell for some people. Now, given these realities, government has generally been left with the responsibility to sort through the social conditions and create standards of behavior within the notion of the nation state. And one of the best ways, I think, to understand that sort of um, manner in which we work within a, a society is social contract theory. Now, I, I talk a lot more about social contract theory when I'm talking about ethics, and I'm, I'm you know, discussing Bentham's contribution and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, and uh, I don't know why I said John like that, John Locke. Um, it, but, you know, let's, let's simplify it a little bit here, right? So, if you're trying to have a broad overview, social contract theory would suggest that a common way to understand the agreement of social norms and behaviors is through this implicit social contract that we all live by, right? So, the social contract... Uh, theory aims to base society on actual or hypothetical agreements between human beings. Meaning we didn't actually write down and agree to a set of things that we have all lived by, but there is an implicit agreement that there is a social convention we should follow. And while not all of it is codified, it's often reinforced through sort of cultural norms and social norms, right? And that need to conform within the accepted morality of a society is one way we reinforce some of the implicit agreements on behavior. Of course, there's also the codified version, and that was usually lived through in the way of um, laws, right? So social contract theory would argue that society does not actually exist until people can agree on how to act. And in a modern sense, that would be something agreed to by consensus of norms, right? Rather than every single person trying to explicitly agree to some contract that everyone's going to sign, right? Now, the social contract, by that definition, would be the rules and laws that people live by. And I differentiated rules and laws because some are codified and formal and some are informal and socially sort of enforced. And people tend to be held accountable for a violation. So either you get social pressure if you're violating a rule or there is a legal sanction for violating a law, right? Now, the contract forms the backbone of almost all modern societies. And some people believe that it actually creates the ethical standards of a society. 
if you go back to the early thinkers like John Locke and, and Rousseau, they all talk about the state of nature, right? This hypothetical place that we would be in if we had no rules. And most of them agree that the state of nature, if you will, would not be a desirable place to live. And so we should live by some standards. The key to a social contract is being able to rely on the fact that all other people will also agree to it, to live by it, and to buy into it, right? And so you do see some overarching themes that exist within any given society, right? We tend to call that our national identity within this sort of confine of the uh, nation state. Or we have regional sort of dispositions that define us as a region. But at the end of the day, there is an overarching set of rules that sort of we all can see objectively, right? Now, the government has a group of people hired to enforce those formal rules and that formal end of the social contract, and that would obviously be our law enforcement, right? And law enforcement make it possible for people to generally live free of intrusion from others, right? So think uh, maintaining law and order, for example. And then law enforcement combined with the judicial system does the job of maintaining that codified social contract, if you will. But then we have other laws that put clear limits on the power of the state by guaranteeing rights to residents and citizens and freedoms that we can clearly see and understand. And in our context, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does that for us, right? It sets some necessary sort of limits on sort of legal um, abilities of law enforcement, if you will, right? And it's to balance the needs of society with the needs to follow uh, to follow the rules, right? So within a Canadian context, some examples of laws that influence the Canadian social experience and reality, it includes the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, like I said. And within that charter is Section 15, right, which deals with our equality rights. So let me, let me read specifically and let me quote here from the charter itself. Uh, the provision under subsection, um, section 15, subsection 1 states, Every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination and, in particular, without discrimination based on race, national or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. End quote. Similar legal provisions can also be found, uh, you know, in Article One of the Canadian Bill of Rights, as well as the Canadian Human Rights Act. And if you take a, a more specific approach to policing or maintaining a codified social contract, you can look at, you know, narrower examples within the Canadian law. So we have legislation relating to hate crimes within the Canadian Criminal Code. And a couple I'll point out just for the for the purpose of being specific here. Under the Canadian Criminal Code, we have Section 318, which deals with hate propaganda and the advocating of genocide. Or you have a section like 319, which deals with public incitement of hatred. And both of those help us understand sort of, you know, the manner in which we can carry ourselves in society. So, for example, uh, Section 319, subsection 1 says, quote, Everyone who by communicating statements in any public place, incites hatred against any identifiable group where such incitement is likely to lead to a breach of the peace, is guilty, and then it goes, and that was the end of the quote, and then it goes on to break down the type of offense, right? So willful promotion of hatred would, would also fall under that. Now, the Canadian Criminal Code 
says a hate crime is committed to intimidate, harm, or terrify not only a person, but an entire group of people to which the victim belongs, and that the victims are targeted for who they are, not because of anything they have specifically done. So a hate crime is one in which hate is the motive and can involve intimidation, harassment, physical force, or even the threat of physical force against a person or a group, or even a property right? that is protected. In Canada, like I said, it's, it's a crime to incite hatred, which is true for most Western democracies. And most Western democracies have a provision in law that clearly states that, right? So over and above that, there's obviously, there's obviously caveats and defenses to that. So you're not obviously in contravention of that if the statements made were true, if they were made in good faith, perhaps for the purposes of expressing a uh, argument in an academic perspective that's, you know, centered around learning and objectivity or within a religious uh, context that is part of a tradition of religious belief within a religious text, for example, right? Or if in some way the statements were relevant to any public interest or disclosure for the purpose of addressing a problem. Now, in case you're wondering why I have sort of switched to a, a legalistic definition, I, I think it's important to put things in context. Obviously, the vast majority of my listeners are students in a justice-based program, and so I naturally defer to a sort of legal uh, view on things. But I, I want to put hate crimes in context just so you understand why I would even bring it up. It's not some obscure sort of um, provision that is rarely considered. So consider, for example, these statistics from Statistics Canada. The number of police-reported hate crimes in Canada increased by 37% during the first year of the pandemic. Researchers said police-reported hate crimes sharply rose to 2,669 incidents in 2020. This is up from 1,951 incidents in 2019, with those targeting race or ethnicity nearly doubling from one year to the next. Right, so the data represents the highest number of police-reported hate crimes since Statistics Canada began tracking that type of data in 2009. The data, in fact, for 2020 shows Ontario had the largest increase in hate crimes at 321 incidents. It was followed by British Columbia at 196, um, and then Alberta had an additional 105, right? So police reported hate crimes against black people specifically rose by 92% uh, with a total of 318 incidents. Hate crimes that targeted East or Southeast Asians rose by 301%. And this might be critical if you consider all of the discussions and all of the things that went viral during that pandemic, right? And there was a lot of positioning around where the flu came from and derogatory terms that described who brought it here and who was somehow responsible for it, even though it was a global pandemic. Canada's South Asian population saw, uh, you know, more incidences than they did before. In fact, it, it had risen by 47%. Indigenous hate crimes increased by 152%. And the first year of the pandemic alone saw 718 more police-reported hate crimes compared with 2019. That's a 37% increase, right? One that's worth pondering and considering when you wonder why I'm talking about hate crimes. So that's a, a quick sort of 
snapshot of some of the legal perspectives that we can utilize to understand sort of diversity in a Canadian context, right? The socially sort of managed um, ideologies that inform people's viewpoints, the cultural policies that define the government stance, our specific criminal code sections that deal with specific violations of our codified rules. And all of those form the manner in which we approach this subject. Of course, in practical application, nothing is so simple, right? People of the same ethnicity do not necessarily share a common culture. Conceptually, almost every aspect of human life can be included under the rubric of culture, right? So, in that regard, it actually explains no aspect of human life. When you talk about this idea of assimilation, then there are challenges there too, right? To just be Canadian, if you will. Well, assimilation implies that there is a standard of behavior and values that ethnic groups can acquire and thereby become similar to the dominant group. Yet, any such standard is impossible to define concretely. And in the absence of some objective criteria, any sign that suggests an ethnic group is adhering to presumed non-dominant behaviors or culture would be taken to reflect an incomplete assimilation. Of course, empirically, from the vantage point of assimilation theory, it is irrelevant to try to find out whether members of the dominant group are indeed as assimilated as they assume uh, everyone else should be, right? Because we don't define assimilation, we can apply it to any group, including the dominant group in society, right? So if we can agree on what it means to be Canadian, how would somebody assimilate to this broad categorization that has no objective criteria. Now, on the other side of that conversation is this idea that multiculturalism encourages cultural uniqueness, right? Yet on the other hand, it is precisely those minorities' uh, alleged distinctiveness in terms of foreign credentials or racial appearance or linguistic accents that actually put them in a disadvantaged position in society as well as in the labor market. So while on the one hand we suggest we should celebrate difference, we very quickly can realize realistically it is those very differences that become the root of the problem when you're dealing with something that is as complex as the labor market, right? And this is where the, the concept of Canadian experiences or Canadian credential comes in or something along those lines. And you start to see that while people are being told to celebrate their differences, it is those very differences that become barriers to full participation in things like the labor market. Right. So you can see right off the bat some of the challenges that multiculturalism presents. The relationship between one's own ethnic identity and social relations in society is to put it mildly, a complex process, right? And researchers will argue that the difference in language and religion stands out amongst the factors that generate conflict and tension. Ironically, these two factors are also the same key variables that reinforces the sense of one's ethnic identity. So that brings this conversation to the personal realm. And that influences the attitudes and dispositions that people carry with them, right? 
So we all recognize that there are innumerable variables that impact upon the lived experiences of people. And the intersections encountered when blending that with other people in society lead to an almost infinite number of possible reasons why, so why society operates the way it does. Now, many modern social commentators have written extensively about the generational reasons why we are in the current situation relating to identity. And some of their common arguments are that the current generation of millennials and Gen Zs are the ones making unreasonable demands for safe spaces and conflict-free zones. And actually, this has resulted in this binary of oppressed and oppressor, which in many ways is furthering uh, you know, racial conflict or culture conflict or identity conflict. And it is this emphasis that is being made in the popular media that's preventing open discourse. Now, if you believe this, you acknowledge that this is a trend that is current. And part of the trend that gets discussed along with this is the idea of cancel culture, right? So the practice or tendency of engaging in mass canceling of, as a way of uh, expressing disapproval and exerting social pressure on a dominant view, right? So the intention of cancel culture, if you will, from um, to define it is to deplatform an individual, an individual or an organization for what is deemed to be questionable conduct. And its emerging prevalence in today's technological world has sparked a lot of heated discussion around its usage, right? I think people on one side of that argument are saying that if you have views that the moral sort of majority think are inappropriate, then you should not be given a platform from which to express yourself and your opinion. On the counter side to that same discussion sit people who believe that it's only in the exchange of ideas that good ideas come to the forefront and bad ideas become visible, right? Things that cannot be defended. Social media and technology are the usual suspects for this sort of, you know, as being the major contributing factors to the current situation. But surely it's not just technology. At least that can only explain some elements of the situation. After all, the technologies were supposed to give us more information and help us be better informed. Ironically, research has shown that people don't reason to get the right answer. Rather, they reason to get the answer they wanted to be right in the first place. So more information can help us find the right answer, but that's only if our search is motivated by aims other than accuracy, um, right? And more information can mislead us then, uh, or rather, more precisely, help us mislead ourselves. Because there's a big difference between searching for the best evidence and searching for the best evidence that proves us right. Now you think about that. What does that mean? In the age of information, we're constantly criticized for not knowing and understanding the facts that inform a discussion. In fact, many will argue that we live in a society that relies on echo chambers of similar ideas that help us reinforce our beliefs. Yale Law Professor Dan Cahen in 2013 did a study and he posited that humans have a tendency to react to information that threatens their sense of identity by mobilizing all of their intellectual efforts just merely to destroy it, right? 
Psychologists call this tendency identity protective cognition. It's a strategy of avoiding dissonance and estrangement from valued groups we admire or even identify with, right? So individuals subconsciously resist factual information that threatens defining values. And most people never feel they are being unduly cynical, nor do they think they're sort of rationalizing away their actions. Most people honestly see their seeking of information with a certain amount of confirmation bias in there, obviously, um, as an honest search for the truth, right? It just so happens that almost every time it tends to reinforce the beliefs that people already had. So this idea behind information and our perception and whether or not somebody should be platformed or deplatformed, whether or not we need more safe spaces or fewer safe spaces, whether discourse should have room for dissent or we've agreed already to a moral majority and that should be the standard, decided and enacted. These are complex conversations and this is really what makes diversity a challenging topic, right? There's a professor at, uh, of psychology at New York University that argued that group loyalties, once engaged, are actually very difficult to change, right? It's very, very hard to change the mind or the position, even with well-reasoned arguments that merely refute a position, right? He, uh, Jonathan Haidt, is the professor I was re referencing. He argues that it's mostly rationalization and just a search for supporting evidence, right? So as a psychologist, they'd call this motivated reasoning, where you're looking for the things that support the rationalization you're using, right? And as I've already pointed out, and I, I think this bears, you know, is worth repeating, the simplest way to activate someone's identity is to threaten it. To tell them that they do not deserve what they have or somehow they are on a villainized group. To make them think that you're, you know, all of society is trying to take it away. The experience of losing status and being told your loss of status is part of society's march towards justice in many ways is radicalizing in itself, right? So behavioral economists confirm very much for us that the pain of loss usually exceeds the pleasure of gain. Meaning that when you're having diversity-related discussions, if you're not considering its impact on all people, you fail to see the, you know, manner in which people approach and react to the conversation at hand, which can sometimes be a barrier to a full conversation, right? So while you can argue that fa while failing to improve one's well-being is dispiriting, losing ground is almost bitter, right? So if we don't approach our diversity conversations from a place of objectivity that includes all arguments and all positions so that we can have a well-informed position, Right? not merely one we already agree with, then it becomes really, really challenging because invariably a conversation on diversity must, you know, or seeks or seems to point the finger at somebody or some group. And that some group is naturally going to respond, right? So how does any of this have anything to do with policing, right? Because at the end of the day, that's where I, I teach and that's what I'm talking about. And I seem to have taken the very long way around this. So let me bring it back to the subject of law enforcement. So police officers are first and foremost members of society. Second, they are citizens engaged in the specific job of maintaining the social order, right? 
So this includes enforcing the law, but also critically includes preserving the rights of other citizens. That's a fundamental part of the protect and serve ideology. It is this essential balance that makes the job of police officers and law enforcement officers writ large challenging and complex. Surely, we acknowledge that police officers do belong to a subculture, but they are not completely removed from the culture of their society. They are equally influenced by the daily experiences of living within a diverse society. Their members belong to various groups and identify with various identities. And all of this just serves to complicate you know, those interactions and reactions that they receive and have. Policing, though, law enforcement, at its core, is a service-oriented job. The question every aspiring police officer needs to ask must include, do you want to protect and serve? And if it's yes to both, who do you think you're serving? It might be worth pondering that in order to tackle this issue, if you will, of diversity within law enforcement context, we must first have an appreciation for what diversity is and how it's understood. And from there, perhaps we can find strategies that will help us bridge divides. Thank you for listening to this episode. We'll be back with more shortly. This is Professor Gonsalves thanking you for your support and hoping you're enjoying the Complexity Unpacked podcast. See you next time.